Welcome to the Probate Realtor Show, your one source for selling and buying real estate through trust and probate. Hear directly from the best attorneys and trusted advisors on how executors and administrators navigate the probate process in and out of court. Being a personal representative or successor trustee can be a daunting task, and often beneficiaries don't have a clear plan. Let us help you make the right decision for your clients, your family, and your legacy. And now, here's your host, the probate realtor himself, Matias Baker Mazzucci. Welcome, everybody. Today, I have somebody really special for you to meet. Not I consider her not just a, a friend. I mean, her energy is just amazing, and she's amazing at what she does. So you are very fortunate. You who are watching these are very fortunate that you're going to meet somebody that is pretty special. Uh, Jenna, welcome to the show. Thank you. What a nice introduction. <laughs> Yay. Okay, so Jenna Glassett is an estate planning attorney. And before we get to find out exactly how Jenna made it to that, to becoming an estate planning attorney, um, let's find out what estate planning is. Jenna, what is estate planning? So estate planning really encompasses two specific situations that many, if not most, if not all of us go through. Those two situations are becoming incapacitated. So losing the ability to deal with our own finances, our own healthcare decisions, control over our day-to-day -day lives. And then what happens with regard to our staff, potentially with regard to guardianship of minor children after we pass away. So estate planning is looking at most frequently looking at those two specific situations and addressing them from a legal perspective to make sure we have the legal framework in place to have our wishes followed if we end up in one of those situations. There's also some tax components. There's some more complicated stuff we do, but at its most basic, that's what we're doing with estate planning. Got it. Okay. So somebody, basically this is about preventing those who are left behind from having to deal with a bunch of issues. It's kind of like, it's kind of like putting your password somewhere. So, so somebody can find them after you die in case they need to like cl close your Facebook account or something. Totally. And that, while that obviously is not a legal part I deal with, I do consider that part of estate planning, right? Having, there's all this stuff you can do outside of working with a lawyer to, like you said, make things easier for the people who are going to be helping you or receiving stuff when you're gone, uh, the people who you care about in theory, right? If something were to happen to you to make the process easier for those people. Got it. Got it. Okay. So somebody comes to you and they say, Jenna, I need um, some estate planning. What is the first thing that you do? The first thing that I do is I get a little bit more information about them. So I want to know kind of the basic family situation. Are they married? Do they have kids? Does anyone have any specific concerns, issues, health issues, stuff like that we should be talking about? High-level overview of what the assets are. Do they own their home, any other real estate, bank accounts, retirement, all of that? So really kind of 30,000-foot view of the situation we're dealing with. And then my first step really is an educational step. I want them okay. to understand, like you said, what estate planning is, what the options are um, within estate planning. Do nothing is an option. So it's worth knowing, right? What happens if we do nothing? What is that process going to look like if something happens to us? What if we do a will? What if we do a trust? I can talk more about those things, but walking people through what their options are, understanding the pros and cons of different approaches, giving them my thoughts on, you know, what might be the best approach for them, 
walking them through process, walking them through pricing, making sure they, in deciding to take on estate planning, are making as informed of a decision as possible as to what is the right fit for them. So that is always step one for me, making sure I'm available for any questions they have, any concerns, all of that. And then, you know, it turns over to the person to decide what and what's the right fit for them in the moment. So that sounds that sounds the right way. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer that, you know, you go to clients as an educator, first of all, because people don't do this all the time. You know, like people don't do estate planning all the time. People don't sell a house all the time. So um, so let, let's let's just look at those three scenarios that, that you that you mentioned. Do nothing. What happens when somebody does nothing? Somebody doesn't have. You know, they decide, you know what, it's too expensive or, oh, I still have so much to live or whatever is the reason they decide not to do anything. What happens when they pass away? So I'll get to when they pass away because I think that is what feels most salient to all of us. But it's worth quickly at least noting what happens on the incapacity side. Oh, true, true. No documents. What happens if they lose capacity? From a healthcare decision perspective, there is no necessarily hard and fast rules about who then gets to make their medical decisions, right? Mm-hmm. And they get a certain procedure done, take a certain medicine, all of that. But doctors and hospitals typically have kind of an order of priority that they will follow for next of kin who can do that. That being said, someone's next of kin might not be the person who they would want right. to in that situation. So the person, by not having documents that really specifically say what they want, ceding that control, ceding those decisions to someone who they might not want to make them, or even if it is the right person, it might not, you know, that person might not know what they want, might not know what their wishes are with regard to end of life, stuff like that. On the financial side, it's a little more complicated because banks, financial institutions, retirement companies, all of that really won't let anyone into someone's account other than that person. There's a lot of liability risk for them. And so often if we need to get control over someone's financial affairs, and they don't have documentation in place giving someone that authority, it requires going to court and getting right. something called a conservatorship that would allow a third-party person to act on behalf of the principal, the person who's incapacitated. Yes. So, so just for our audience who may not be familiar with the term conservatorship, can you tell us what, what a conservatorship is? Yeah, it's it's the legal authority for a different person to act on your behalf. So- accessing your bank accounts, dealing with your retirement, making financial decisions for you, selling a house, buying a house, all that kind of day-to-day financial stuff. You can, of course, do it for yourself, but if you're alive but cannot, if you lose capacity, nobody can do that. And so you can delegate people to do that in an estate plan, in kind of legal documents you prepare in advance while you're able to. But if you don't and you lose capacity, then someone is going to court, someone's going to have to go to court uh, for the court to grant them the legal authority to start making those decisions for you. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like a post facto uh, uh, power of attorney, some, you know, like in, yeah. a, in a, yeah. But one you have no control over because you're incapacitated right. at that point. So, yeah. you know, the courts are overworked there. I like to think everyone's doing their best to do what's best for people, but how much can you learn in a short uh, court hearing, right? The court doesn't have right. all the information about who might be the right fit to do this. And so where people have preferences, listing those preferences in a legal document is incredibly valuable. That makes total sense. Now, now what if I say, look, Jenna, I mean, I got a will, whatever, everything is fine. You know, I went online and I downloaded this template for a will and I wrote it, you know, my money is going to my kids and everything is fine. Like, 
you may see that in your practice, people who have done a DIY you know, approach to this and just, so what is the difference between you know, a will? So somebody that has a will, um, whether that's good or bad, um, let's go down that path. And, right. then, and then we'll talk about a trust. So I think this really ties into the question that you just asked that I didn't answer, which is what happens if someone does nothing and you pass away? Oh, right. What if someone does nothing and then they pass away? What if someone has a will and then they pass away? And then you touched on what if someone has a trust and they pass away? And those are essentially the three options that can happen with regard to our stuff after we pass away. Right. So the first one is the do nothing option. You have no will, no trust. You're like, I'm fine. I'm immortal. Nothing's ever going to happen. Something happens. You pass away. Then your family has to go to probate court. Right. And the probate court is deciding who's in charge of the process and who gets everything. And the court's not just making it up. There's an order of priority under the law for both of those things. Got it. Who's in charge and who gets everything. Surviving spouse typically gets priority of who's in charge, then kids if adults, uh, potentially grandkids up to parents, uh, siblings, nieces and nephews kind of out from there. Same idea on who gets everything, although it can be more complicated if there's a surviving spouse and kids. So the court, family has to go through the probate court process. Court decides who's in charge and who gets everything based on a really generic order of priority under the law. So that's option one. Option two that you just raised is what if you have a will? Whether it's one you hand wrote or whether it's one that you did online or whether it's one that was done by an attorney perfectly, right? We could say this was done perfectly. Mm -hmm. Doesn't really matter. In those situations, again, someone is going to probate court. It's going to be whoever's named in the will to do so. It might be family, might be family friend, might be whatever. Someone's going to probate court, whoever you've named as executor, uh, goes to probate court, opens a probate, and the probate court, again, decides how things are distributed, but rather than looking to the order of priority, is looking to the terms of the will. And so long as the terms of the will can be followed as for who's in charge and who gets everything, the court will really honor that, but will oversee the process. So in both of those options, do nothing and have a will, the probate court is involved. Right. And that's where we start to get into the conversation of a trust because you know, because you spend almost more time in probate court than I do, probate court is not a good experience. And it is especially not a good experience in California. It is yeah. different state by state and how bad the experience is can even vary county by county. So this is not true everywhere, but in California, pretty much across the board, probate avoidance is really our main goal with estate planning. And yeah. I would say there's three main reasons why that's true. One is that everything is public record. So there is a public record of the probate that gets opened, who passed away, who their beneficiaries are, and what the assets are. And that means that people look at these things and might reach out to beneficiaries and try to sell them something or whatever it may be. So people interested in privacy often want to avoid probate for that reason. It takes a really long time. So I think the statistics are it takes about a year and a half to two years on average for a case to go all the way through the probate court system. My quickest and easiest ones still take almost a year. So it's not like there's a really short option. There really is. Um, so it takes a long time before the money can be used as freely as you may want for your beneficiaries. So there's a long delay there. And then the third thing is it is incredibly expensive. There's some court fees and those are maybe a few grand all in through the process, but the big issue is attorney's fees. Right. Um, there are, in, almost always need to have an attorney, especially when there's real estate involved. 
and attorney's fees are set by law, they are a percentage of the assets, not discounted by debt. And this is where our words collide a little bit because when you have real estate, which is typically your most leveraged asset, you might right. only technically own 20% of it, but we're looking at the full value and determining how much the attorney gets. Right. So we live in Los Angeles. I don't know what the average house cost is here, but let's say the average house costs a million dollars. And then you have some bank accounts and some other stuff. Even if you just had the house, attorney's fees on a million dollar house are, I think, 20, uh, yeah, $23,000. And so if you only own 20% of it, if your equity is 20% of it, then you have an asset worth $200,000 to get passed on to children. And you're paying more than 10% of that in attorney's fees. And executors technically get the same fees. So you could be actually spending $46,000 just on that one asset in attorney's fees and executor fees. And so that's really where we start talking to trust. And we can talk about that next. That's one of the pros and cons we're balancing against. Avoiding probate, it can be very beneficial, if not to the person themselves, at least to the beneficiaries, their family who's going to have to deal with this if slash when something happens to them. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. And um, obviously, you're right, everybody, you know, the majority of people have, you know, a leverage on their homes, there is a mortgage, there is, so um, going on the full value, that's obvious. the same thing is true for, for real estate agents, such as myself, you know, we charge a percentage of the sale price, not a percentage of the uh, capital gains that are made on the, or whatever the proceeds are. So definitely uh, planning, um, Doing some estate planning can save can save a lot in that regard. Now, um, let's talk about trust because it's a it's a it's a very misunderstood subject. Revocable trust, you know, a living trust, and when people talk about what happens with a with when a when one of the spouses passes, et cetera, et cetera. I know that um, I don't want to by any means you know go into too much details in, into the the little nuances, but why do you recommend, you know, with somebody who owns a residence and they may own a business, you know, and, and, and you know, they may be retired or, you know, anyway, they work hard all their, all their life. Why do you recommend that they set up a trust? So there's a bunch of different kinds of trusts and a lot of them fall within the category of irrevocable trusts. And I'm not going to talk about those at all because those are kind of a different animal and used right. for different purposes. So the most common type of trust is what we call a revocable living trust. Right. And a revocable living trust functionally is really similar to the way we would colloquially think of a will. It's just a legal document that says who gets what after you pass away, who's in charge after you pass away. A trust has more, but at its core, that's what it's doing. It's a document that directs what happens to your stuff if right. something happens to you. The trust, the reason why we recommend a trust, especially in California, and especially for anyone who owns real property, is because a trust, if done properly, and I will explain what I mean by that, will avoid probate. And so that whole discussion of all the evils of probate and that we want to avoid, the trust, especially when you own real property, is really the only way to avoid that whole system. Right. And so a trust, like I said, just a legal document that lists out who's in charge when and what and all of that. But the way it avoids probate is we retitle our assets during our lives into the trust. So, you know, if we looked at my house, rather than looking at it and it just says Jenna Glassic on the title, 
it would say Jenna Glassic as trustee of the Jenna Glassic Trust. So mm -hmm. if you look at the way you interact with your assets right now, how you pay your bills and your taxes and your mortgage and access your checking accounts and all of that. And then you look at that after that whole process, after you've set up the trust and retitled everything perfectly and all of that, it should feel no different. You know, it's not, we're not talking about making your day-to-day -day lives more complicated, but to avoid probate, there's this annoying part in the middle where you create the trust and then you have to actively retitle everything into it. And that's what I meant they, by- They call it funding the trust, right? That's, that's yeah. the, yeah. Funding the trust. And that's the if done properly part. We need to do that step to actually avoid probate. I think a little counterintuitively, real property, business interests, those are really easy, mostly because me or whoever attorney you're working with will retitle those for you. And there's laws to make sure that your mortgage doesn't get called. We make sure your property insurance is covered, right? So we want it, it like I said, it should not negatively affect you in any way, but we have to go through a little process. Updating bank accounts can be pretty annoying. Updating beneficiaries on retirement, not as bad, but is a process. So that's always the pro and con we're weighing against each other. The benefit of avoiding probate, the annoyance of having to retitle stuff. And I would say the benefit of avoiding probate pretty much always wins out. But those are the things we need to be thinking about in deciding between, I guess, do nothing or a will on the one side and a trust on the other. That makes total sense. Now, here's a burning question. Who needs estate planning? So on the incapacity side, I would argue everyone because okay. any of us can lose capacity and it really doesn't matter how much stuff you own or any of that. It, the, the benefit is not necessarily linear there, right? All right. of us could benefit even if we have one bank account and mm -hmm. even if we have none because we still have bodies and there's still healthcare stuff to do. Sure. Incapacity stuff, I would say everyone should have it. On the post-death side of things, if we say either a will or trust, who wants at least one of those things? Really anyone who has a preference that they want to state, that there is a default under the law, you know, that surviving spouse is in charge and gets everything or part of everything, depending on how things are titled and if there are kids, then stuff goes to kids, then it goes to parents and to siblings, all of that. If you look at the order of priority and it exactly comports with what you want to happen, and you do not care about the people listed going through probate, then arguably you don't need to do anything because that's what's going to happen regardless. But right. if your wishes vary from that in any way, who gets everything, how they get it, right? Getting money outright, getting a check in the mail is not right for everyone. Minors, right. for example, right. some addiction issues or health issues, stuff like that. So if you want anything more than kind of, it just goes outright to whoever your closest living relative is, then you would benefit from an estate plan, whether that ends up being a will or a trust, some document that explains your wishes. That makes total sense. You know, I recently, for the first time, sold the property that was in a, that was the title of the trust in a generational skipping trust. So the grandparents did not want to add the parents any money and they made sure that it went to the grandkids. You know, that was the title of the trust, generational skipping. But So the more accurate you want your planning to be, the more you actually have to do the planning. If you want to default to the law, which obviously is going to be complex and costly. Um, so estate planning is really for everyone, I guess, uh, right? I would say so. I think the people who it feels most important to, parents, right? Because guardianship, we cover guardianship and estate planning, uh, especially if you have minor children, you don't want them just getting money, you know, when they're a minor because they'll get full access at 18. So 
I would start from everyone, but narrowing it down. Parents, especially beneficial for people who own real property for the reasons that the um, probate fees would be so much higher. Blended families is a really big one. Blended families, you know, if you don't have an estate plan, the order in which the spouses die can really decide whether your kids get anything or not. Um, so that's, I'd say, a huge one. Anyone with beneficiaries who shouldn't get a check out, right? Beneficiaries right. who are on government benefits, beneficiaries with addiction issues, uh, anything like that, um, I would say would be the kind of biggest, most important ones. But then I think to our point earlier, it can benefit pretty much everyone. Very nice. Very nice. Thank you. Uh, let's let's find out a little bit more about you now. Uh, tell us where where you were born. Where did you grow up? So I was born in New York. Um, right. Some people say it's, I sound like I'm from New York, but I don't. I think I just sound like I'm from California and I talk yeah. to that. But I was born in New York. I moved out here with my mom when I was about four and have right. been in Los Angeles ever since. So I'm well, on and off. I went to college. I went to law school, but um, uh, raised in L.A., now back in L.A., uh, raised mostly on the West side, grew up in Mar Vista. It was not quite as hip and cool when I lived there as it is now. Um, and now out here in the Valley, I'm in studio city. Very nice. Very nice. And how did you decide to become an estate planning attorney? I mean, when you became an attorney, um, what was the journey from, you know, what am I going to practice? Or is that, or is that a decision you made in, in law school? So, no, it's not. I, okay. Even my decision to go to law school, I think, was an interesting journey in that I was a junior in college. I was a little rudderless. I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do, but I did know I loved school. Mm -hmm. And my mom was an attorney. My stepdad was an attorney. It was something very familiar to me. My mom did not want me to be an attorney and then um, accidentally let slip one day. I think it was the summer after my junior year how much her law firm paid first year associates. And I was a kid and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I can stay in school for three more years, a place I love and make that much money, count me in, sign me up. So to her much chagrin, I believe, I decided to go to law school. I think mostly because I just didn't know what else I wanted to be doing. Went to law school, I was in New York, I was at NYU, loved law school, absolutely loved law school. And law schools, really encourage working in a big law firm. And there's a number of reasons for this, some good, some bad. But again, I was a little rudderless. I didn't really know what I was looking to do. And so that was, at least seemed like a way to delay the decision. The argument mm -hmm. being, you're going to get great experience and then you can do whatever you want. I think that argument's flawed, but that's what the argument is. So went to law school. My mom got sick when I was um, in my first year of law school. So she, I was at NYU she got sicker and sicker and I ended up transferring to UCLA during my second year. So I finished up law school in LA. By then I had offers to intern over the summer at a couple of firms, did a, a couple summer, worked at my two summers, worked at firms out here and ended up going to one of those firms when I graduated. So I was in a big law firm upon graduation doing complex commercial litigation, which was intellectually very interesting. Um, a, big law, the reputation is not unfounded of being, you know, kind of taking up your whole life, being uh, draining in a lot of ways. And so I was there for about four years and then realized that that's just big law life was not what I wanted forever. And so started to think of what to do. Um, my first year when I was in law school, my mom passed away. And at that point, I was then in the middle of probating her estate. My mom was a very successful, brilliant attorney. 
Um, she was, we were in a blended family. I had a stepdad. He had uh, his own children. They had been working on their estate plan. They couldn't come to an agreement for various reasons. And at her death, she had a handwritten will. And mm. so we had to present her handwritten will to the court. Uh, my stepdad and I did not get along and this perpetuated that and it dragged on and ended up dragging on for eight years. So when I left my law firm, I was kind of in the middle of that process wasn't sure what I wanted to do exactly, but knew I didn't want to be a big law attorney, not least of which because my mom had been a big law attorney and had been miserable. And really, mm. I had watched her work so hard my whole life, specifically so that things would be a little easier for me. Um, my dad passed away a few days before I was born. So it was just me and her for a long time. Oh, wow. And I watched her. She took jobs she didn't like, and she worked hard because it was a good paycheck and it could help her support me and her, but she was miserable. And so I found myself taking that gift she had given me of working so hard so I could do whatever and using it to do the same thing she did, be unhappy in a high paying, but exhausting and draining job. So I left, I you know, decided to take a break from the law. I got my MBA. I um, sort of started a beer business while I was there. Wow. <laughs> I, I went into uh, business school and I did for a beer business. I found amazing classmates to try it out with me. And we, you know, did a whole business plan. We did it through our whole time there. And then when I graduated, I was going to start it, but I had my son in the middle of business school and realized at that point, I'm not starting a beer business. I have a baby at home. This is incompatible. <sighs> and, and then it was kind of in another place of like, what am I doing? And was smacked out in the middle of this miserable probate experience and got kind of radicalized about the fact that this would have been so easy to avoid with proper planning and took a little time, talked to other people who do this area of law, did a lot of research, wrote a 50 page business plan for what was meant to be just me on a computer somewhere with a law practice. Because <laughs> um, I had to kind of systematically think through what it would look like and the costs and the potential and all that and decided to try it and have never once looked back and it's the best thing I've ever done. And I kind of love every day that I get to do it. Um, and so it, I came by it, you know, honestly, through just being in the midst of it and, and hating what could happen and if it's not done properly and hoping that I could help people avoid that situation I'd found myself in. What a remarkable story. I did not know, I knew a bit, you know, I, I remember, knowing about you know you moving from NYU to 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 LA because of of your mom's health etc but I did, I did not know that the driving force behind was you personally having to go through probate and then you're like well you know what I can help people avoid this I get you know with with my talent that's very thank you for sharing that yeah. I, I really like that um, okay now on a little bit of a what they call the back of the card, the back of the business card. Okay, let's do something a little fun. I have a set of 30 questions. Sure. I know time is really flying, um, <laughs> but you know we can extend a little bit beyond. Uh, so I'm not gonna ask you, the, the, the sheet has 30 questions, but I want you just to pick a number from one to 30 and I'll pick one of the questions. These are like uh, fun, uh, fun questions that are collected from various um, TV interviewers, et cetera. Okay, so pick a number between one and 30? Yes. 17. All right, 17. Why were you given your name? Oh, I was given my name. So I don't, my mom wanted, I'm, a, I'm Jewish. And in the Jewish tradition, we often will pick a name for our children that starts with the same first letter as someone who had passed away. Okay. Really bad luck to put someone who's alive. So we do someone who passed away. 
So my mom's father had passed away not that long before I was born. His name started with an H. My maiden name was Holtzman. And so my mom and dad were kind of kicking around H names, having a lot of trouble figuring it out. My mom really wanted to call me Rafaela, which is fascinating. <laughs> she had really no reason for it, but she loved that name. So they were trying to figure out. And then I touched on this already, but a couple months before I was born, my dad started to get sick. He just got sicker and sicker. It was a disease called Wegman, uh, Wegner's that is an autoimmune disease. Um, and he ended up passing away four days before I was born. His oh, name wow. was Jeffrey. So my mom had to change tactics and picked a name that started with J. I don't think she realized it at the time. If you look at the kind of uh, number of people named Jenna over time, there's a graph for it. Like 19, when I was born, 1985 is like the peak. <laughs> I think some... Um, like a soap opera that had a character named Jenna on it. So oh, it kind of had its moment in the sun. She didn't watch it, but I think she just maybe heard it in the lexicon a little right, bit. Right. That's what she ended up choosing. Oh, very nice. Very nice. All right. Well, very important. Um, how does our audience get a hold of you if, if they need uh, estate planning? So a really easy way is just to check our website. Um, because there's my information, you can meet, you can schedule a consultation directly through the website. We have some information just that could be helpful. We have a blog on there. So it's always a good starting place for people. Our, my law firm uh, is called Laurel Trust Law. Uh, I have been doing, uh, did this on my own for a while. And then just exactly a year ago, pretty much brought on a partner, rebranded. We are now Laurel Trust Law. Um, so the website is LTL firm. So LTL for Laurel Trust Law and then firm for a law firm. LTLfirm.com has a lot of information. I can be emailed directly at Jenna, J-E-N-N-A at LTLfirm.com. My number is 818-651-7593. Any of those is an option. All that information is on the website though. So that's usually an easy first step. That's wonderful. Great. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I can't, I can't believe this 30 minutes has flown. Yeah. So we're gonna have to have you back and 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 maybe talk more about you know this vast subject that is that is uh, estate planning. Anytime, this is awesome. Yeah. So thank you so much, uh, uh, Jenna. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you, and I will um, hopefully I get to see you more. I'm sure we you know in the next uh, um, have you more more on as a guest in the future. Anytime. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.